This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 13th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Dr. Salim Abdul-Karim, who's been central to efforts to control the COVID-19 outbreak in South Africa. Slim's a clinical infectious disease epidemiologist who has been central in the past to work in South Africa on HIV. He's based in Durban. His work has brought in many international awards, including most recently the Canada Gardner Global Health Award, which he shared with his wife, Croatia. In the past, he's led the South African Medical Research Council, which is the equivalent of our NIH, and he's a member of the British Royal Society, the U.S. National Academy of Medicine. With the COVID-19 epidemic, he has again taken a central role. He is leading the Ministerial Advisory Committee for the Government of South Africa. But before we talk about South Africa and the new viral variant that was first recognized in Durban, let's look at some of the work we've published on the use of the anti-IL-6 receptor antibody tocilizumab. Why has there been such interest in this therapy? We've discussed many times in the past the fact that inflammation appears to play an important role in COVID-19, particularly during the later stages of disease when people develop manifestations like ARDS. While the driver or drivers of this inflammatory response aren't really known, it's certainly true that many patients have elevated levels of IL-6. So starting early in the outbreak, there was a good deal of interest in using agents such as tocilizumab in severe illness. In fact, at some hospitals, it became the standard of care even before we had any data supporting it. But the early RCTs haven't been very encouraging. However, there are conflicting studies out there, including a preprint, which has gotten a lot of attention. So what's different about the study that we published? This is a multi-center randomized controlled trial, which enrolled patients who were hospitalized, but didn't yet require mechanical ventilation. Like the earlier study that we published, the primary endpoint was intubation or death. This study was somewhat larger with 389 patients randomized two to one to tocilizumab or placebo. Unlike the previous trial, however, this group met their primary outcome with 12% of patients in the tocilizumab group dying or requiring mechanical ventilation as compared to 19.3% in the placebo group. This resulted in a hazard ratio that didn't quite overlap with one. Thus, a much better looking result than in the previous trial. And most of the secondary outcomes also favored the tocilizumab group, except one, and that's a pretty important one. Remember that the primary outcome was a composite of intubation and death. But when death was considered alone, there was actually a slightly increased rate in the tocilizumab group. So how do we interpret this finding? It's not entirely clear. There are many differences in patient care among the tocilizumab trials, all of which were performed as a standard of care evolved over the course of the outbreak. And the patients recruited into each trial had different baseline severities of disease, different ethnicities, different races, and all of these might account for their differing outcomes. But I'd keep two important points in mind. First, there certainly is a value in ensuring that patients don't require mechanical ventilation, even if the agent doesn't end up preventing them from going on to die. However, neither tocilizumab nor remdesivir, which is being widely used, has been shown to save lives. And in fact, the evidence suggests that they have little effect on mortality. And second, it's difficult to know the place of agents like tocilizumab and baricitinib, which we published on recently, in an era where another anti-inflammatory drug, dexamethasone, actually has been shown to decrease death rates. 
Eric, what I've learned is that when a result from a study is straightforward, the description of what it means can be simple. And as you've tried to help us understand where TOSI fits in, given the conflicting data, it makes me come back to a refrain that we've had over the last many months. Clinical research is hard to do. It just is. There's a changing baseline of treatment. There are different contexts where treatments are given. There are different comorbidities and backgrounds that may influence outcome. And there are different values as to which outcomes matter, such as shortening hospital stay versus having an impact on mortality. And there's also a changing virus with viral evolution, something we'll get to a little bit later. And as these factors all change over the last six months, then new observations are that much more challenging to fit into practice, particularly when multiple therapies along the same pathway are emerging, such as the anti-inflammatory pathway, as you pointed out. So my hat's off to the investigators, but it's a challenge for us at the bedside to know where these treatments may fit in. Things are happening so quickly in this area in COVID-19 that we get overlapping results. We get the results of studies that were done months ago showing up now at the time when the standard of care already has changed. And I agree with you, even with these well-done studies, and this is another well-done study, it's so tough to know how to implement what we're learning. Slim, in South Africa, are these types of therapies being used? And is there a sense of where they fit in? Thanks, Lindsay. As we look at the way in which we are managing patients here in South Africa, the focus has been on dexamethasone oxygen support and uh, focus on ensuring that patients maintain their saturations. All of the additional pharmaceutical interventions are really secondary and are individualized, and we are not routinely using TOSI in South Africa. And remdesivir, where has that emerged as a potential therapy? Remdesivir is uh, available in South Africa. It's used in the private sector and much less so in the public sector. I think the big concern is the fact that it's injectable places a huge burden on the healthcare service, the cost, and also the modest benefit in terms of mortality and hospital stay reduction. I think all of that combined makes it a, a drug that doesn't have a pride of place in our first-line management of patients with COVID-19 in South Africa. It'll come as no surprise that the U.S. healthcare system isn't set up for efficiency. And there's no question that right now we're using a lot of interventions which aren't necessarily very cost-effective. In fact, we haven't really seen cost-effectiveness analysis for anything that we're using. Nevertheless, I think as Lindsay has pointed out, people who are treating patients with COVID-19 want to do the best for them. And there's a move to implement things very early, perhaps earlier than the benefits have been thought fully through. Perhaps I'll just add that in, in managing our patients, we do provide a range of additional therapies. But one of the things we found that's been particularly important is the inclusion of low-weight uh, molecular heparin. I think that when we look at all of those combined, 
our outcomes have been quite reasonable in terms of pretty low case fatality rate compared to many of the other countries. And so I feel sometimes that uh, you know, keeping it simple is a pretty good way to manage patients. And along those lines, you know, Eric, what you said before about when we're taking care of patients and at the bedside, the temptation is always to do more and to do more with whatever is the latest treatment that people are suggesting might have a benefit. And we all struggled with this with hydroxychloroquine and the chloroquine compounds you know, eight, nine months ago. And finally, after study after study after study failed to show any evidence of benefit, were we as a community able to move on? And I think we're struggling with that currently. You know, when we have a sick patient in front of us, the temptation is to do something, even if the evidence does not support it or does not support it for the outcomes that we care about most. And Slim, your point about low molecular heparin is the complications of COVID are just as important, if not more important. And it's defining that pathogenesis and then using interventions that we have on the shelf in ways that we know how to use may turn out to be some of the most important interventions that we do. I want to ask about an article that we're publishing today, the early phase results of an adenovirus-based vaccine. What did we learn in that study? So this vaccine, which is known by the not very easy to say name, AD26-CoV-2S, uses a different technology from the two vaccines that have received emergency use authorizations in the U.S., it's an inactivated adenovirus that is used as a vector to deliver the gene for the viral spike protein. So the antigen is the same, but the delivery method is different. The concept is very similar to other vaccines out there, such as COVID Shield, which has already received the equivalent of an EUA in the UK, India, and Argentina, and Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine, which is being widely distributed, and a Chinese vaccine, 6185.hk, which is being used, as I understand it, in the Chinese military already, even though it hasn't had a reported phase three study. In the case of the vaccine that we published, AD26-CoV-2S, the serotype being used is AD26, which is relatively rare in human populations, suggesting that there's not a lot of pre-existing immunity to the viral vector, and therefore perhaps a vaccine is more likely to take than uh, one for which there is a pre-existing immune response. The trial we published is a phase two trial, which used different doses and regimens to look at safety and immune response. I'm going to summarize a good deal of data across several arms of the study, which used different dosages and different schedules. Safety appeared broadly similar to other reported adenoviral vectored vaccines. As seen with the other vaccines, the most common side effects were local injection site pain was the major one. Several recipients also developed the usual array of systemic effects, such as fatigue, headache, myalgia, and fever. Almost all the recipients developed neutralizing antibody responses, and these persisted through at days 57 in the study. Most also had evidence of an appropriate T-cell response. And importantly, even the recipients who received a single dose of vaccine developed antibody responses that looked broadly similar to those who received two doses. More is better, and having another vaccine will be vital for the control of the epidemic. We don't know how well this one will work yet, but the finding that a single dose can produce lasting immunity, at least lasting for a couple of months, 
led the investigators to start a phase three trial of this using only a single dose of vaccine. That trial is underway and we hope to have the results over the next several weeks. I mean, I think that as you suggest, Eric, these data are very encouraging. They're early clinical phase data, no endpoints uh, in terms of prevention of illness, but those studies are ongoing. I think this work overall is incredibly elegant in how the preclinical, the NHP model, the non-human primate model, and the early phase human data are highly choreographed by the investigators to allow a better understanding of how the immune responses elicited may behave. Ultimately, we need the data from the efficacy trials, the two of which are going on globally currently, to tell us whether or not it actually works. But the preclinical and early clinical work do work very synergistically to give us a good sense of how this may work. You know, one of the issues that we've had all along is it's not clear what an effective immune response looks like. And when we get to the point of understanding that better, these data will mean even more because it may not be so important to do a very large study to measure efficacy. It, of course, will be important for safety reasons to follow a large group of patients for a longer time. But these sorts of responses do look broadly similar to the responses that do produce protection in the vaccines that have been studied more heavily. And therefore, I think, once again, I think we can be pretty optimistic about vaccines like this being effective. Eric, what I think you're getting at, which is one of the most important questions in my view, is identifying a correlate of protection. I think that can only occur from the human efficacy studies, but the supportive data from the preclinical models will be helpful to better understand that. But once we have a correlate of protection, then the ability to do bridging studies to other populations such as children, or perhaps to other vaccine constructs if we need to evolve the insert based upon viral changes becomes possible. And so I think the pursuit of a correlate of protection is incredibly important. Hopefully will come out of the large scale phase three efficacy trials. And then with these preclinical data, hopefully will make a sense scientifically. Let's turn back to South Africa. Slim, before we talk about new viral strains, what's the overall situation in the country? Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here with you. Um, when we look at the epidemic in South Africa, shortly after we had our first case on the 5th of March last year, South Africa took very early and decisive action to prohibit mass gatherings, close schools, close borders, and institute a lockdown. And this led to a slowing of viral transmission in the community. And it postponed a peak that we were expecting in April, uh, pushed it all the way back to July. And that gave us a bit of time to prepare, put up field hospitals, secure adequate oxygen supplies, and all of the things that helped us deal with the peak when it arrived in July. But we always knew that the lockdown and the restrictions were really not sustainable, not sustainable beyond a few weeks. And so we always were expecting that viral transmission would come back and come back quite rapidly. And so as we increased into this peak in July and dealt with it, we were a bit surprised actually that it wasn't that bad. And I think partly it was the case because we had 
empty field hospital beds, and the number of cases that we had anticipated through mathematical modelings just didn't pan out. I mean, we did have a severe epidemic, but not anywhere near as bad as we thought. And I think partly that created a bit of complacency because we didn't anticipate what was to come next. The original thought was, okay, we're going to see a second wave. We'll see it after our summer vacation when you know, everybody moves around and goes back after vacation. So we were anticipating it would probably be somewhere in early January. Well, two things happened. The first is that when university and high school students finished their final examinations in October and November, it was party time, difficult to control. We ended up with a situation with several super spreading events where thousands got infected. And we didn't know at the time that we had in our midst a new variant, a variant that could spread more efficiently. And so that combination of a more efficient variant together with super spreading events ended up in a situation where it seeded community transmission. And we went into our second wave somewhere in the middle or latter part of November. Right now, we have just over 1.2 million reported cases and just over 34,000 deaths. Hospitals are straining. We today in South Africa have more cases and more deaths than we ever had during the first wave. I had never imagined how much more severe the epidemic would be. And it's really about the speed with which the cases have increased and the burden that they have placed and the pressure that they have placed on our hospitals. But on the plus side, it's been important also as an opportunity to come together, where in the midst of the frustration and the pandemic fatigue, people are now realizing and coming together to deal with this because almost everyone knows somebody who's got this disease or who has died. It has served as an important opportunity to rededicate ourselves to prevention, not just for ourselves, but for our families, our work colleagues, our neighbors, and our community. In a sad way, this coronavirus has helped us re-identify our interconnectedness and our interdependence and how prevention is for all of us to do for everyone. Slim, may I ask, what is the impact on day-to-day life as of now? What's open? What's closed? What can people do? We have a five-tiered alert system, and we are now at restrictions called adjusted level three. Adjusted level three involves no mass gatherings. Funerals are restricted to only 50 people. Beaches and parks are closed. Uh, there's no stay-at-home order. So, you know, shops are open and there's no restrictions as that is concerned. But there's one major issue, and that is that alcohol sale is banned because we learned from our first wave that when we banned alcohol and cigarettes, that it had a huge impact. It basically cleared out our emergency rooms, our ICUs, all of those motor vehicle accidents, interpersonal violence, those cases of pancreatitis, all gone. So 
we had to implement restrictions on alcohol in order to ease the burden on the healthcare services and to make space in the ICUs and the ventilators to allow for the COVID patients. So right now, you can't buy alcohol in South Africa. Wow. I mean, that's pretty tough. And Durban, which is known for beautiful beaches, no one getting out there. How well do people comply with these restrictions? We have generally had good compliance in the early stages of this epidemic. But we saw at the end of the first wave, people were just getting tired. And uh, it was well described, you know, as we eased our restrictions, the masks got lower and lower below the nose and then below the mouth, and now they're pretty much on the neck. So we, we saw that. We saw a case of people just reaching a point of tired and just irritated and frustrated with having to put these restrictions. But now that we are in the second wave, we've actually seen much better compliance. One of the important aspects of our prevention measures is to enhance enforcement. And while mask wearing, for example, is compulsory, as is sanitizing when you go into a building, it hasn't been a criminal offense. And so because of the big concerns about pandemic fatigue and the need for greater enforcement, uh, mask wearing has for a short period now become a matter that's amenable to law enforcement. And I think that that's just part and parcel of trying to regain momentum for social distancing, mask wearing, and hand hygiene. So Slim, you've described a remarkable series of interventions in South Africa. We hear a lot less about the rest of the continent. Do you have a sense of how things are going elsewhere in Africa? As I serve on the African Task Force for Coronavirus, we've been monitoring the situation at a continental level. It's largely being coordinated by the African CDC, which has assumed a much larger role in supporting individual countries. And their leadership has been central to the response in Africa. As of now, there are just over 3 million reported cases in Africa. It accounts for about 3.5% or so of the global cases, much lower than the proportion of the population. There have been about 73,000 deaths that have been reported, a case fatality rate of around 2.4%. Just five countries out of the 55 on the continent account for just over 70% of all cases. They are South Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya. But what's important is that the entire continent at this stage is in the grip of a second wave, not just South Africa. Anything that's happening in the Southern African region is also being mirrored in West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, and Northern Africa. So we are grappling with this problem. Now, some have said to me, oh, you know, it's just bad reporting. It's true, there is under-reporting. And we have seen that in many countries in Africa. But it's not true that that, that under-reporting is so severe that it gives us a completely skewed picture because our colleagues across the continent are not describing hospitals and healthcare services where there are queues of acute respiratory distress waiting to get in. We're not seeing that. So I think on the whole, the underreporting is there, but we are seeing an epidemic 
that is much less severe than we had anticipated and that had been predicted in Africa. That's very interesting. As you said, I think a lot of people have attributed the low numbers to both underreporting and a lack of availability of testing in some countries. But it is interesting that when you look at highly urbanized countries like Nigeria, Nigeria is not on this list of the top countries. And it makes you wonder what the cultural differences are that are leading to very, very different rates of disease. Yes, Eric, it's been quite an enigma, actually, to try and understand why the epidemic hasn't taken hold, as was predicted. And I think one of the important features or explanations is the age makeup of the population in Africa. We have a predominantly young population. If you look at our population curve, the large proportion of our population is under 30. I think so. Besides age, I think that there are other things as well. One of the things that was done very early, for example, in the entire Southern African region, was they instituted lockdowns. So just the interventions at country level also contributed to slowing the transmission. And then there are many other hypotheses, too many to name here, but you know, they include things like the limited international travel to Africa was also contributing to less seeding of the virus within the communities. And so there are other explanations that add to it. But I think overall, we don't fully really understand why Africa hasn't been impacted as we anticipated beyond the age factor. Slim, I mean, do you think testing is adequate across the continent to understand transmission? Because if you're waiting for disease to be the marker of transmission, as you pointed out, there may be population stratification issues that might decrease the detection through that mechanism. Yeah, and that's been noted now in a few countries where they have done zero prevalence surveys. So for example, in a recent survey in Kenya, they found that about five to 7% of the population was infected. But as they have such a small proportion of actually reported cases uh, in South Africa. Similarly, if we look at just the data in South Africa, for every reported case we have, we have nine more individuals who have antibodies. So, I mean, you can imagine that if that's what we're dealing with, and in a country like ours where we test a lot, you know, we don't even know about 90% of the epidemic. So, our ability to control the spread of this virus is very limited. I mean, the traditional way in which you would go in, test, isolate, quarantine, and so on, when you don't even know most of the cases, even if you can pick up half of the cases you don't know, you still have several cases that you just don't know and they will keep spreading. And as you know, asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spread is really critical. So we've had real challenges in Africa trying to control the spread of this virus because the methods that have been very successful in much of Southeast Asia are difficult to implement to the same level in Africa. Slim, a new variant of SARS-CoV-2 was found in your hometown, Durban, and it's become increasingly clear that related viruses are being found all around the world. What can you tell us about the mutations in the South African variant? The new variant 
of SARS-CoV-2 that was found in South Africa is called the 501Y.V2 variant. And it's really named after the position of the key mutation within the receptor binding domain. So what's unusual about this variant? We've been monitoring the phylogenetics, the genetic sequences of our SARS-CoV-2 in South Africa every month. Once a month, I get to look at all of the sequences and essentially we've been seeing about one to two mutations a month on average. I mean, generally it's been quite underwhelming in terms of the genetic variability in this virus. Suddenly, in November, we see the emergence of a new variant. This one has 23 mutations, of which 20 lead to amino acid changes. In other words, the protein structure is changing, not just the gene sequence. And of those, the most important are three mutations that are in the receptor binding domain. And I'll give you their positions just so that you are aware of where they are. They are in positions 417, 484, and 501. We also have in this variant a cluster of five mutations and three amino acid deletions in the N-terminal domain of the spike protein. Now, each of these three receptor binding domain mutations is associated with immune escape on their own. But what's interesting is that if you look at just the mutation at position 501, it results in a change in both charge and shape. And that, as a result of that, the virus, when the spike protein is coming to attach to the ACE2, it is rotated by 20 degrees. And in the course of that rotation, it's able to bind deeper to the ACE2. So the binding of the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor is enhanced by that mutation. That binding is even further enhanced by the mutation at position 484. So 484 is normally negatively charged. The ACE2 receptor at that point is also negatively charged. So it, there's a bit of a flap there. The position at 484, the spike protein is not quite attached. It's just flapping around. But what happens with the mutation is that the amino acid at position 484 is now positively charged. And so the positive charge is now attracted to the negative charge. And so the binding between the spike protein and the ACE2 receptor on the human cell there's much more affinity. The binding is stronger. So that means that it's now more efficient in the way it's being transmitted. Slim, the basic science that you're describing, the mechanistic understanding of the interaction between the virus and its receptor, has that been borne out with epidemiologic observations in KwaZulu-Natal? So what we are now seeing as a result of what we've observed biologically, is now being correlated epidemiologically. What we are seeing in South Africa is a virus that is spreading faster. It's dramatic. If you look at the province of the Western Cape, 
The amount of time it took to reach 100,000 cases was 50% faster in the second wave with the new variant than it was in the first wave. Now, there are many things that influence the speed at which the virus is transmitted, behavior, restrictions, and so on, but the variant is contributing to that as well. If one looks at my own province, it took about 40% faster to get to 100,000 cases in my province under the current variant than it did in the first wave. And the net effect of this is that the evidence we have is that the new variant is not causing more severe disease. The disease is not any worse. The clinical features are not any worse. But the pressure on the hospital is much worse. The cases are arriving at a very rapid rate and they're putting enormous pressure in a short period in the healthcare system. So the healthcare system struggles. And that's what we've been seeing. And it correlates well with what we've seen with the B117 variant that's common in the UK and in many other countries. In the UK, that variant was shown to be 56% faster in the way in which it transmits. So it's in keeping with what we've been seeing with variants, that these viruses are able to transmit more efficiently. And you would expect that because viruses generally evolve to become more transmissible and usually less pathogenic. Why did this viral variant, or really many viral variants, emerge in South Africa? And I'm not even sure we know that it emerged in South Africa versus it was detected by those who were in a position to detect it. Either there is tremendous transmission allowing the chance events, or there's some kind of selective pressure, selective environment, perhaps cofactors like HIV, TB, nutrition. Why do you think the viral variants emerged in your neighborhood? What pressures do you think facilitated that? When we look at the way in which viruses evolve over time, in the particular case of the coronavirus, now, we sort of look towards four different ways in which new variants emerge. The first is just by natural variation. The second is by replication errors. But then the other two become important, which is cross-species transmission. In other words, did the virus go into some animal and then come back into humans? That might explain why you got 23 mutations in one go from a virus that's otherwise very stable. Or is the immune pressure, is it replicating in somebody where there is convalescent antibodies putting immune pressure on the virus to mutate in this way? Well, I guess all of these are important hypotheses. We can't answer the question right now. It's an important question because I think knowing how this variant has come about is going to be important so that we can predict the way it's going to happen again. And if it's happened here already in South Africa, it can happen anywhere. And it could happen in a way that we could predict if we knew how it was emerging. What proportion of the community isolates now is the new variant? Within the three coastal provinces, we have now sequenced a few hundred of the viruses. And in all three of the coastal provinces, the Western Cape, Eastern Cape, and KwaZulu-Natal, they account for up to about 90% of all the isolates. So from a variant that was barely present a month ago to one way it's so dominant, 
it just indicates how rapidly it is spreading. What are the implications of these variants for immune escape, both for reinfection and for the efficacy of the vaccines that we're currently using? There have now been three or four published papers, either in, as preprints or in journals, that have looked at this question. In particular, a most recent paper found that nine out of 11 convalescent sera were not neutralizing the variant that has a mutation at position 484. It seems that the mutation at 484 is particularly important for immune escape in natural immunity. So the implications of that is that we are now running a risk that there may be more cases of reinfection with the new variant among those who've previously acquired the disease. And that escape from natural immunity, it's not only from 484. 484 is the most important, but actually the mutations at 417, 501, and at the end terminal are all contributing. The studies that have been done have looked at each of their contributions, and in combination, they have quite a substantial amount of immune escape, as I pointed out. So that is a concern. Are we seeing reinfection because antibodies from past infection are not protecting against the new variant? That is a question we don't have an answer to right now. There are anecdotal accounts, there are clinical cases, but we had clinical cases even in the first wave. So this needs a very careful study. And so several studies are underway to answer that question exactly, but we don't have the answer yet. Similarly, we do not yet have any evidence that looks at the ability of vaccine-induced immune responses in neutralizing this variant. I'm very hopeful that we're going to see those results soon because those studies are well underway. But at this point, we have no evidence to show whether any of the currently available vaccines are able to neutralize the 501YV2 variant. So in regard to vaccination, what are the plans in South Africa and in the rest of the African continent? South Africa is securing vaccines through three mechanisms. We are part of the COVAX facility. We also, there is a African procurement mechanism that is procuring about 2 billion doses for the whole of the continent. And we also have individual bilateral arrangements with certain manufacturers. Using those three mechanisms, we're hoping to secure an adequate number of doses. At this point, our target in terms of our vaccination strategy is to achieve 67% immune protection. That is considered herd immunity, and it's actually based on an R naught of three with several assumptions. But we chose to go with a higher level for herd immunity because of our variant. Our variant might actually have a higher R naught than the previous variants. The plan is to vaccinate in three phases. Phase one is healthcare workers. And at this point, we've secured doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to initiate vaccination in healthcare workers within the next two to three weeks. The next phase is moving on to elderly people, those with comorbidities, essential workers, and those in congregate settings like schools. 
The phase three is then the remaining population, adult population, and then phase four is the remainder of our country. So our goal is to vaccinate 40 million people. The challenges are enormous, the hurdles abound from procurement of enough doses to storage challenges, to distribution challenges, to documentation challenges, just the logistics of doing all of this. The president of our country on national television, he calls them our family meetings. He articulated it better than I can. He said that this is a challenge beyond any other that we have faced in health. It is even bigger and more complex than hosting an election or scaling up antiretroviral therapy. Thank you, Slim, for joining us today. And as usual, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.